with Christ and a number of different dimensions of that, union with Christ in general, what it means to be united to him, as today we'll look at, um, as opposed to being united to Adam. Um, And then we'll talk about our union with Christ in his death, our union with Christ in his resurrection, and then our union with Christ in his ascension. Um, The text that we'll be mostly working from this evening is Romans chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 21. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that, As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Well, as I've said, we just met today and are beginning to get to know one another. Um, If you knew me very well, you'd know that one of the things I really enjoy doing is researching family history. Um, genealogy has taken me to lots and lots of places, lots and lots of graveyards all over the country, mostly east of the Mississippi, but I had to cross the river a couple times to visit. Actually, last year I satisfied a bucket list and visited the 167th, and that was the last known gravesite of one of my direct ancestors. You can see I need some better hobbies than what I have. <laughs> but I enjoy it. It takes me lots of different places. And there, there are some things that are really driven home, truths to your mind and heart as you spend time in cemeteries. Um, a lot of people don't enjoy cemeteries because of the very clear declaration that's there in front of you in the earth and in these stones. A truth spoken with perfect clarity, and that is the certainty 
and the universality of death. Now look at these people and you see the dates on their stones, you see their names, you see some of the relations, and then they all have ended up in the same place here in front of you in the ground with nothing but this stone and sometimes not even that. Remember one of the most bracing things I've ever seen. This was in a cemetery in Philadelphia and it was a stone that was old enough to have been broken off and all that remained of the inscription was gone but not forgotten. And the irony was nobody had any idea any longer to whom that stone belonged. You're faced with the ultimacy, it would seem. You're faced with the certainty, with the universality of death and maybe even oblivion. I remember at one point in my family history opening a box, a shoe box of pictures, which I had received from a distant relative and realized that in a couple of these families they had um, not had children and that that lines had ended there and that I was the only person on the planet to ever know that they had even existed. These are the kinds of things you think about <laughs> as you're walking through cemeteries. Now, some people would look at, at the death that's pictured there in a cemetery and just attribute this somber reality to mere biology. This is just the way nature works. Some people would even try to romanticize or maybe glorify death, write poems about it. But no amount of words will ever make us feel good about the reality of death, apart from the hope that we have in Christ. And deep down, I think even these poems themselves are probably efforts to deal with our knowing in our core that there's something more than mere biology at work in the cemetery, that there's something not natural or poetic about death, something that indicates that there is something dramatically, fundamentally wrong with the world, something really wrong with humanity. Well, this intuition that we seek perhaps to, to suppress is one that Scripture confirms for us, even in the passage that we just read. It tells us that this universal reign of death is not merely a matter of biology or of nature. There is a historical, more particularly there's a theological foundation to this reality. And the passage that we just read speaks to that cause. Paul, as we have just heard, tells us in Verse 12 of this passage, that we all die because sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and that death spread to all men because all sinned. The first scripture reading for this evening, we, we heard the narrative, the story that, underlie, that underlies this theological reality. Adam disobeyed. Adam was condemned. Adam was driven away from the source of eternal life and in the end he, he died. And we see that as we continue reading beyond this story in Genesis that Adam's descendants also died. They too were cut off, expelled from the garden, that source of eternal life. 
Paul explains this by saying that all died because all sinned. The question before us that I want to take a closer look at this evening is, what does he mean by saying all sinned? Is he here talking about the actual personal sins of all men? Do all men die because all, like Adam, sinned? Now, it's true that all of us are people who do, in fact, commit our own actual personal sins. All have sinned. Paul has already told us earlier in this same letter to the Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And these actual personal sins that we commit would, by themselves, be sufficient to condemn us to death. But I think there's reason for us to, to think that this is this our actual personal sins, is not what Paul is talking about here. Uh, Walking through old graveyards tells us something else about the reign of death. Sometimes the older the cemetery, the more clearly this truth is communicated. And this is the large number of stones, many of them small, some of them larger, but most of them very small, where... There is no dash between the date of birth and the date of death. Um, Sometimes there's not even a name. There's just merely baby on the stone. No name, no length of life, nothing indicated. Cemeteries remind us not only that death is universal, but also that it is no respecter of age or of relative innocence. Death doesn't wait to take us until we've filled up some measure of our own personal individual sin. It doesn't even wait until we're capable of acting on our sinful impulses and committing personal sins of our own. Death doesn't just take dangerous criminals. It often and perhaps the vast majority of people who have died since the fall. It also takes harmless infants. Again, our experience of death in this dimension indicates that there's something more going on. There's something deeper. There's something more foundational behind universal death than just our own individual personal sin. Well, this intuition from experience is also confirmed by what we read in this passage. Well, how so? Well, Paul tells us in verse 14 of chapter 5 of Romans that it isn't only those who sin like Adam who die. That is, it isn't only those who transgress a specifically revealed command of God. Death, again, it comes to all, even to those who had not yet received or have not yet heard God's law. And death has always done so, from the time of Adam to Moses. Well, then, if not because of such actual personal sin, then why death for all? And what does Paul then mean in verse 12 when he says, all sinned? Well, consider what else Paul says. He says in verse 15, for example, 
that the many died through one man's trespass. In verse 16, that all received a judgment following one trespass. In verse 17, that death reigned because of one man's trespass. In verse 18, what led to condemnation for all men was one trespass. And in verse 19, the many were made sinners by one man's disobedience. What Paul is saying here in Romans 5 is the death of all, the condemnation that leads to death, and even the sinfulness and disobedience on which that condemnation are based, they're all brought about by that one sin of the one man, our one father, Adam. And when Paul speaks of death coming to all, it's not merely because Adam's fall corrupted them toward committing their own personal sins, though this too is one of the effects. Rather, condemnation and death come to all, and even to the youngest and the seemingly least offensive of us, because all sinned in Adam's very sin. And because we all even from birth, are counted in this category of sinners. And that because of Adam being placed in that category of sinner. Now, this indicates a a kind of relationship that may sound very, very strange to us on one level. Um, It assumes this alarming kind of connection or oneness or unity between us and Adam. A union so thorough and so total that the sin and guilt and condemnation of the one becomes the sin and guilt and condemnation of the others. By what analogy can we begin even to understand how this would be possible? Well, I have a rather limited analogy. Limited because of its inherent inadequacy, but further limited by my complete ignorance of most things related to sports. I was walking past the park um, on Friday night, and I thought, well, that's a funny-looking baseball bat. And I realized, oh, they're playing cricket. Actually, it's not as bad as that. But I just am not a sports fan. But I think I understand this, and I hope it will help you understand at least the beginning of this. How does sports fanaticism work? Well, we have our team. We've identified ourselves with that team. We've probably donned the identifying jersey of that team and we make all the predictions we talk smack with everyone else about what our team's going to do the predictions of our team's victory at the next game well then the game approaches and as that game approaches and as we have all of our snacks and we're sitting there and we're comfortable in our chairs what is it for which we're hoping well we're hoping for glory we want bragging rights maybe just the pure joy that we experience of victory And the game day comes. And what do we do to procure these goals? Well, precisely nothing. (laughs) Right? I mean, at least nothing which actually produces the outcome. I mean, we might tell the people around us, this is what they should do. Um, If we're being particularly rational, we might yell at the screen as if they could hear us (laughs) and follow our advice and do that. 
Perhaps we even have some superstitious rituals we go through. Whenever I do this, my team wins. Um, but deep down, we know none of this is going to accomplish anything. We're hoping for glory. But upon what foundation does our hope of glory rest? It rests entirely on the performance of our team to which we have no opportunity to contribute anything whatsoever. Now, we contribute nothing. But what difference does that make when our team collapses? What difference does that make when they crash and burn? Well, they lose. But that's not all. Because in reality, when your team loses, what happens? Well, you lose too. They lose. And that makes them losers. But really, that's also what it makes you. When your team loses, you're a loser. And you know this is true because this is what you say about the other team. When they lose. This is how it works. And why, why are disappointed sports fans losers? Not because, not because you made a bad play, but merely because of your identification with that losing team. You had the hat, you had the jacket, you talked the smack before the game, and now here you are in shame because these people over whom you had no control did not perform as they should. Your choice to don that particular jersey in those colors that day. Because of that connection, the team's loss becomes your loss. All your hoped-for glory is lost and lost to you. No bragging rights for you. And again, because of how badly you performed, no. Because of how badly your team performed, and for that reason only. Now, I said very, very limited analogy. But it's something like this with Adam and with his descendants. When God created Adam and placed him in the world, he entered into this covenant arrangement with him where if he obeyed, he would live. If he disobeyed, he would die. But we also know that God did not enter into that relationship with Adam alone. That arrangement, that covenant that God made with Adam was a covenant that included all of his family as well. This was a representative relationship. This was an identity. This was an, a, a unity that was established between Adam and all his posterity. And this was a union that made it so that Adam's victory in keeping God's commandment would be the victory of his descendants as well. And it also meant that Adam's failure to keep God's command and Adam's loss would be the loss of all his descendants as well. Well, we read what happened in the first scripture reading. Adam competed. Adam lost. And we've also read in Adam's loss, as we read in Paul, we all lost. And we all lost something infinitely more important and valuable than bragging rights about a sporting event. We lost life. In Adam's sinning, Paul says, we sinned. In Adam's condemnation, we stand condemned. And in his death, we too, generation after generation after generation, each in our own turn, we die, all of us. And so Adam's sin. Adam's sin is the answer to this question of why we all die. 
That's not what Paul is emphasizing in this passage. This is, what, this is what Paul is explaining in order to help us understand the other part of this. The reason Paul is emphasizing this relationship with Adam and our loss in Adam is because what he really wants to talk about is something incredibly more encouraging. Paul speaks of Adam here for the sole purpose of setting forth, as he says, a type using Adam as a foreshadowing of whom? Of Christ. Well, in what way did Adam foreshadow Christ? Well, in this to begin with, and that Christ is another one with whom it is possible for others to enter into the same kind of union. Christ is another one by whom men can be represented, represented, in whom they can be identified to the extent that his actions and his status and his experience becomes theirs. This is what I want to talk about for the next four weeks. This essence of union with Christ. How did Christ become one with whom men could be united in the same way that they used to be united with Adam? In Adam, it was by natural generation, by his covenant headship over the human race. But how did Christ become such a one with whom such a union was also possible? Well, God sent Christ into the world. He took on our flesh. He took on our weakness, yet without sin. And God sent Christ into the world to be the administrator, Hebrews tells us, of a new covenant, of a new arrangement. God sent Christ into the world to be the representative head of a new and redeemed and renewed human race. In Christ, what God has done is provided us with another team, another champion in the contest with whom we can be identified. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We don't have to guess or wonder how this is going to turn out because the contest has already taken place and Christ has already been victorious. God sent him into the world. God subjected him to the same kind of test to which he had subjected Adam in the garden. We read about this in the Gospels. We talked about that even this morning out of Psalm 22. We saw that like Adam, Jesus was tempted. But we also see that unlike Adam, not only in the wilderness, but also in the cross. He withstood and he obeyed. And again, not just in that 40-day period. Jesus obeyed his entire life from his earliest childhood to the high point of his obedience, the death on the cross. He performed a life and a death of perfect obedience. This one act of righteousness that Paul speaks about in this same passage in verse 18. And as a result, following that life of obedience, that obedience unto death, God declared Christ to be his righteous one, the victor. And he declared this by raising him from death 
to life. And as Paul explains here, this was not just for himself. He was not winning this contest for himself alone. It was also a victory for everyone who would be represented by him, everyone who would be identified with him, everyone who would be joined to him, everyone who would be united to him. His victory would be theirs. And in this way, in this way, he is like Adam. And this is what Paul means by saying that Adam was a type of Christ. And why Paul makes the comparison over and over and over again in this passage. He's comparing these two unions. The grace of God and the free gift by that grace. How do they come? Well, of that one man, Jesus Christ, he says in verse 15. Abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. How do they reign? Verse 17, they reign through the one man. Verse 18, how do justification and life come for all men? By one act of righteousness. Verse 19, how are many made righteous? By one man's obedience. Because of the union. Because of these unions, the action and the status and the outcome of each one man, Adam and Christ, become the actions, the status, and the outcome for everyone who's united, not just to Adam, but then also united to Christ. So these similarities are there, and Paul is making capital of these similarities to help us understand our relationship to Christ. But what Paul spends more ink on than the similarities here is actually on the dissimilarities. And it's in those dissimilarities where we find the really, really, really good news that Paul has for us because the differences are staggeringly good. What is the effect? What's the result of union with Christ? Well, instead of sin condemnation and death, all who are united with Christ receive, Paul says, righteousness, justification, and life. Union with Christ overrides all of the inheritance that we had when we were in Adam. It reverses it. But it does more than that. Because as we said, our fundamental problem is what we get from Adam But in addition to that, along the way, each one of us has made our own contribution as well. Each one of us not only sinned in Adam, each one of us continues to sin in the same way as Adam. Personally, individually, actually, as well. I think there may be some people here old enough to remember the the movie Gremlins. And in Gremlins, you had Mogwai. He was really cute at first, but if you put a drop of water on him then out pop these offspring that were not as cute as Mogwai. But then what happened is you added water to them and they continued to multiply. And it was multiplication and multiplication and multiplication. It was, uh, it was a mess. Each gremlin spawns its own crop, leading to a much bigger problem. Paul then is talking about this happening to the human race. We had Adam, he sinned, that caused trouble for everyone. But then each individual offspring of Adam sins in the same way and it just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Billions and billions of sinners and billions of sins. 
And here is where we see that what Christ accomplishes through uniting us with himself is so much more powerful than what Adam did. Paul says in verse 16, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What Christ did for those in union with him is greater than what Adam did to those in union with him. It's greater in its power. But we also see, and this is important, we also see that it's greater in its permanence. The life that Adam had was a life, as results demonstrated, could be taken away. But, verse 21 tells us, the life we receive from union with Christ is not of the same kind. It's eternal life. It's life that never ends. It's life that is eternally and unendingly filled with unimaginable joy. The reason for that is because the life we receive from union with Christ is Christ's own life. It's greater in its abundance of grace. This is part of the great importance of the doctrine of union with Christ. This is why we want to be united with Christ. But how does this happen? How can we be united with Christ? We were united to Adam simply by being born of Adam. We're united to Christ by a rebirth, by a, a spiritual rebirth. From our perspective, we, we enter into this union with Christ by placing our trust in Him, believing that He is the Son of God, believing that He came and that He died and that He was raised from the dead, believing this in our hearts, confessing this with our mouths. Scripture says that everyone who does this is united to Him. All who call upon the name of the Lord, Paul says, will be saved. And so if you're one who's here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never entered into this union with him, then I hope you see from what Paul says here how important it is that you do so. I hope you see that it really is truly a matter of life and death, a matter of eternal life and death. But now Paul along the way has said, and he's emphasizing here, wait, this eternal life isn't given to us on the basis of how well we obey? Well, if that's what you've heard Paul saying, then yes, you've heard him rightly. And this, this is again, this is one of Paul's primary points in making this comparison between Adam and Christ and emphasizing how the acts and status and outcome of each become those of those united to them. Because by emphasizing this, Paul is emphasizing the graciousness the freeness, and this isn't even a real word in the United States, but the giftishness. He wants to know that this is something you did not work for. Someone else did the work for it. We received life through union with him in the same way that we inherited death from union with Adam. Through the act and the status and the reward of somebody else. It may be unnerving, as we heard at first, it may be unnerving to hear that we can be condemned on the basis of the sin of our first father. But on the other hand, consider what a comfort it is and a joy it is to know that the reversal of this condemnation, and not only of that condemnation that we received in Adam, but 
the condemnation that we additionally have piled on, storing up wrath for ourselves as we continued on our own personal sins, all of that also is reversed and not on the basis of what we have done, but solely on the basis of what Christ has done. This escape from death and this gift of eternal life, it's achieved by work, but not ours. The work of Christ. The gift of eternal life is something that's given to us by what Christ earned for us. This is what it means that our righteousness, our justification, and our eternal life are all given to us as a free and gracious gift. And it's the concept of this union with Christ that I think helps us see and understand this truth. And we'll see more of that over the next few weeks as we unpack it in the way that Paul has done. But for now, what this means means that for those in union with Christ, while the graveyards may be universal, they're not ultimate. They're temporary. This is part of the way that I'm able to still enjoy them. Walking through them and viewing them as fields ready to burst forth with the harvest of life on the day of resurrection when the saints will rise to enjoy the life that's been freely given to them because of their union with Christ. Let's pray. Let's stand for the prayer. Our Lord and our God, how easy it is for us to have such a narrow focus that we look only at the moment. We look only at the now. We look only at the, the trouble and the difficulties in front of us. And Father, how much, how much easier our walk would be if we kept in view what you have ultimately promised us. And Father, how grateful we would be if we considered fully the basis on which you've given it to us, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of your connecting us to your Son and giving us life in him. Lord, make us grateful. Help us to walk in that newness of life as well. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.